Exodus. We're continuing our series in Exodus. And so um, you can turn in your pew Bibles or just listen while I read from Exodus chapter 11. And the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn back to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to be going um, back a little ways and uh, talk about the event of the Exodus and this um, thing called the plagues this morning. Let's pause again and just give God glory and praise. Our Father, we bow in your presence. Our hearts have been stirred by your spirit. We know that you have called us your treasure. We know who we are. We know how far short we fall of your glory. You are holy and righteous and pure. And yet you have made us to be the righteousness of God. Because you made him, your son, to be sin for us. Dying the death we should have died. Giving us his righteousness and peace. Thank you, Father, that you have reconciled us to yourself, that you have made us friends. You have called us children. We gather this morning, Lord, as your children, and we ask that your presence would be especially keenly aware by each one of us, and that your spirit would speak to our hearts and teach us more of your vast love for us. That you would stir our hearts and soften us towards you, Lord. And that you'd be pleased to make yourself known. That you'd be pleased to use us as your instruments and vessels of love in this world that's lost and confused, dark and needy. Oh God, meet with us. Encourage your people. Stir our hearts. And may we live lives that glorify you. In Christ's name. 
Amen. I had the privilege of teaching Sunday school this morning to uh, the pre-K and uh, kindergarten. And um, I was reminded by Gregory Phelan, not Greg Phelan, but Gregory, that as I was teaching about eternal life in the context of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, when Christ said to Martha that he who believes in me will never die but live forever, Greg said, well, forever is more than Googleplex. It's infinity. Infinity is always more than Googleplex. That's how long we're going to live forever. And it sort of framed things in a new way for me again to say, wow, that's a long time. It's like time just sort of stands still. We can learn a lot from children, can't we? Which reminds me, we took um, Juliana out for um, apple picking on Friday. Gail and I did. And um, some great apples at Yasky's. I mean, they're huge. They're like watermelons. If you haven't gone, you gotta you got to see these. Just So... We're walking along afterward, and we got some cider donuts, and we're laying on the rocks, and we're walking down into the field, and we go to Pex Falls, and she's skipping stones, and we're picking up leaves of all sorts and colors, and she's pretty, you know, she's having a great time. She's just sort of lagging behind and flitting like a butterfly, and as we're walking back to the car, she looks up at me, and she says, Grandpa... Tell me everything you know about God. I mean, that's a lot of pressure. So I stammered and I said, well, you know, God made all this that we see. See the orange mountains, aren't they beautiful? God made all that. And he made this little leaf in your hand and he made the butterflies and the bugs and the trees and everything we see. And then Gail inserts a theological concept. Yes, Juliana, and he made it all from nothing. He just spoke, and it came into existence. He's the only one who could do that. And, you know, somehow I think this four-year-old kind of got that, though it was hard for me to comprehend. It's not like he used a 3D printer. He just, he didn't need any materials. He just sort of spoke. And what was in his imagination became life. And it's a perfect, delicate balance that he's achieved, right? And you look at it and you say, how could that happen by chance? I don't think so. Well, she asked an important question. Tell me everything you know about God. In our series as we're talking about the exodus there's this guy pharaoh who's king of egypt all power to pharaoh he's seen as a deity himself sort of like the son of ra the sun god the actually the greatest of all the gods there's something like two thousand egyptian gods but he's the embodiment of ra the descendant of the sun god and so he must have had a Pretty healthy self-image, you know what I mean? Um, 
Moses comes to him out of nowhere from this far remote desert and presents himself into the courts of Pharaoh. And he says, thus says the Lord. Let my people go. You say, oh, excuse me. As far as the Lord goes, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So it's a little bit different than Juliana's question to me. What he's actually saying is, excuse me, but I'm God here. You don't come in here and tell me what to do. I don't even know who your God is, by the way. I mean, here... The Hebrews had been in his land, in the land of Goshen, for all these years. He'd probably seen them. But here they are, 400 years, under oppressive situations, suffering from their taskmasters, strong arm. And, you know, they might have remembered somewhat of what God was like in this covenant that they were supposedly a part of. But that was a long time ago. And when you're suffering, your memory fails pretty quickly. You know what I mean? It, it sort of speeds up that process of being far removed from what might have been or what once was. When God gave this covenant to Abraham, telling him that they would be a blessed people, that they would possess the land, the land all the way from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates and everything in between, uh, that wasn't happening, was it? But, but what God had also said to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis was that his people were going to have to go into a foreign land and be held as captives and slaves for 400 years. So now the time is ripe. It has come for them to be delivered. God uses this guy that he has prepared, protected him at birth from being killed, along with other babies, prepared him in the backside of a wilderness as a shepherd. Ironically, that skill will be used by Moses to lead God's sheep through the wilderness. And now he empowers him with his own presence to do what Moses says. I can't do this thing, God. I can't speak. I, I can't. I can't. I won't. He says, you will. I'm with you. You can do it. You will do it. I'll give you your brother, but you'll do it. And in the series of plagues, you see how Moses changes from being this timid, passive, frightened to being a powerful, even angry, righteously angry man as he watches Pharaoh allow his country to be destroyed by the plagues. Something that Pharaoh could have averted had he just conceded and repented. So the Exodus is about a lot of things. It's about God revealing himself to his people as a covenant God. You know what covenant means? 
It's like I make a promise. It's like when I said I do to my wife, I meant I do. For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. We're bound together. There's no back door. We're together. We go through everything. God says, I'm the covenant God, and I have called you my people. So after Moses presents this sort of challenge, this request to Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets tough with them, right? He removes the straw, and they still have to maintain the quota of bricks, and it becomes worse and worse, and the people are on edge, and they say, why in the world, Moses, did you even come here? Why are you riling up Pharaoh and making our conditions even worse? And he gathers back the people, and this quote from Exodus 6 is amazing. Exodus 6 6 and 7. The Lord told Moses, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you from my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Five times he says, I will. That's a promise, guys. That's like when I tell my wife, I will paint the shutters. That's not a promise. That's like if there's nothing else to do and the sun is shining and all the stars line up, maybe I'll get to them. That's not a promise. If I say I will, that's like I hope to do that. But when God says I will, it's like done. It's as good as done. It's like, that's it. That's going to happen. And what's God saying that he's going to do? He's going to bring them out from under the burdens. It's like a beast of burden is going to have that load just lifted off. And all of a sudden he's free, you know. He can jump ten feet high. That's how you're going to feel. And I will deliver you from their bondage. You'll be free. Set. The doors will be open and you'll walk as free people out. From under. You don't know what to do with yourselves, right? It's like, I'm free! I'm free! Wow! I'm free! And I will redeem you. That's like God saying, I'm going to go into this place where you're held captive, and I'm going to pay the ransom price for your freedom, and I'm going to buy you for myself. You're actually going to become mine. No, no longer are you Pharaoh's property. You're my people. Guys, listen. You say, what does this have to do with me today? Because this promise is for you and I. It is through the covenant given to Abraham that all the nations have been blessed. That when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you receive him as your Savior, you get this kind of relationship with God. Right? This is awesome. You become his child. You're set free from the bondage of sin. You become his child, his people. He becomes your God. This is possession. This is a relationship. This is what he calls us to. And then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is like really knowing. This is not about just knowing the stats, right? How many hoops he shot or how many points he made. This is knowing God 
himself. That's what God desires. That's what God permits. That's what God encourages. That's what God wants in our lives is an experiential, living, vital relationship with every one of us and collectively as the church. That's the covenant that he's made with us. So he says this is, this is what it's all about. They've been under oppression for a long time. They've been suffering. They forget who I am. They don't even know if they recollect this, this kind of relationship that I'm supposed to have with. They doubt me. They wonder if I'm good. They wonder if I'm powerful. They wonder if I can actually do anything. Now they're going to see that I can and I will and I have a plan. And it's all going to come to fruition now. God gives to them a covenant and then God gives to them a repeatable story. He says, I want you to tell your sons and your daughters, your Julianas and your Gregories. I want you to repeat the story over and over again, folks, about the redemption you have in Jesus Christ. That's our privilege and our responsibility as those who know him is to take our little ones on our knees and say, Let me tell you about the great God of the universe. I'll tell you everything I know about him. He's wonderful. He's mighty. He's powerful. And he's personal. And he loves you. And you start to tell him. And then you hear them repeating it. And you say, it's catching. Another generation who will walk with God. That's the privilege we have, is to retell the story. God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may perform these signs of mine among them. And you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them so that you may know that I am the Lord. Tell them about it. So now God turns his attention to Pharaoh and he takes up the challenge. Was his question sincere? Who is this God? I do not know him, and I will not let his people go. Well, you're going to find out. Because the Lord takes the ten of the 2,000 gods that are very connected to nature and physical manifestations, and he challenges those, showing how he can just sort of knock the legs right out from under them. And they have no way of standing before him. That he is utterly supreme, sovereign, Lord, majestic, and there is none other. So what they were putting their trust in was the Egyptian god of the Nile. Yes, named Hapi or something like that, H-A-P-I. Controlled the water, the quality of the water. It was the main source of drinking. God comes and he turns the water into blood, the springs and the rivers into blood. There was nowhere they could go. So they start to dig around the Nile and God allows a bit of trickles here and there of fresh water because for seven days he allows that water to turn to to be turned to blood. Everything in it dies and turns into a terrible stench. God is glorified. Hapi, the god of the Nile, is shown to be less than powerful to do anything about it. 
the magicians and sorcerers duplicated it. And so, as Tyler said last week, Pharaoh was relatively unimpressed with this miracle. God allows it to happen again with the frogs. He challenges the Egyptian goddess of fertility named Heket, who has the head, this goddess has the head of a frog. And, of course, he makes frogs everywhere. There's no place you can go. You can't even lay on your bed without frogs in your face. And he says, there you got it. The plague of frogs. It, too, was duplicated, and Pharaoh was less than impressed. He hardens his heart. But Hecate can do nothing to limit or, or, or reduce the number of, of frogs until Moses prays that they go away. Thirdly, there's gnats. God challenges Geb, the goddess of the earth, who's over the dust of the earth. The dust of the earth turns into gnats, and you've got these little creatures in your eyes and your ears everywhere. You think, how can he do that with one little gnat, turn that into a pestilence? But he does, showing what God can and will do. Geb has no control. And then this miracle cannot be duplicated. And so the magicians come to Pharaoh and they say, this surely is the finger of God on this one. We can't duplicate it. Pharaoh doesn't seem to be impressed. And he hardens his heart again. And so God brings flies challenging Capri, the Egyptian goddess of creation, who has the head of a fly. Swarms everywhere. I assume these are flies that like to land on you and bite. I've seen these swarms. Remember in Upper Peninsula of Michigan, as a camp counselor taking a bunch of kids up to a log slide, and they all ran way down to the bottom of the sandy log slide by the water, and all of a sudden, they're just like little ants down there. You can see the kids starting to swap. And they're trying to run back up this steep bank, and they can't get up there fast enough. The flies are all over them, and some of the kids are dropping like flies. Bad joke. And we had to rush some of them to the hospital for heat exhaustion. Flies are a terrible thing. Pharaoh says, pray on my behalf that this be taken away. Pharaoh learns that God listens to prayer. The flies go away, and again... Pharaoh's like us at night when God speaks to our hearts. The next day he sort of forgets what God said. And his heart hardens again. Now I'm God and I'm in control and I'm not going to give in to any other God. And so God brings a pestilence upon the livestock. Challenging his God, Hathor, the Egyptian goddess of love and protection, who has the head of a cow. This pestilence kills all the cattle, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. All forms of meat are eliminated. Transportation comes to an end. Farming and agriculture, they have no oxen. So the whole economy sort of comes to a halt. Still, Pharaoh remains hardened. Tyler talked to us last week about the hardening of the heart. His heart was hardened. And so God brings boils and sores, a challenge to the, key, to the goddess Isis of medicine 
and peace. He takes ashes from the furnace and throws them in the air. And those ashes turn into sores and boils from the bottoms of their feet to the top of their head. Every Egyptian is covered with sores. It's getting pretty personal now. And there's nothing that the goddess Isis can do about it. She cannot prevent. Again, she is seen, they are seen as weak and defenseless before God. Yet Pharaoh hardens his heart once again. And so God sends hail, challenging this goddess Newt, the Egyptian goddess of the sky. Hail comes down from the heavens like fire, huge hail balls, and destroys everything in the fields, including animals and people. Whoever's left out there is exposed to these hail balls, which kill and destroy. Newt, the goddess of the sky, who is seen leaning over the earth, arched, can do nothing about it before the god of the Hebrews. Still, still, Pharaoh hardens his heart, full of pride and arrogance. So God sends locusts, a challenge to Seth, the Egyptian god of the storm and disorder. Locusts come from the sky, so many that they cover all light, and they begin to eat and devastate the land. Anything remaining that the hail had not killed, the locusts eat, and so the food source is completely gone. I mean, you can get a picture of what Egypt is like now. Pharaoh's beginning to see that, you know, God is pretty powerful, and in this Event, he pleads for forgiveness. He calls Moses back and he asks Moses to intercede on his behalf so that God would forgive him. So God sends this strong wind to shift the flight of the locusts into the sea. He sees what happens when he repents, but he hardens his heart again. You might say, come on, Pharaoh, get over yourself. Humble yourself and admit that you're weak and God is superior. But how many times do we harden our hearts toward people? We set off to do the right thing, to make amends, to make peace, and then we see the person and our hearts become hardened again. And we fail to say what we intended to say to try to remedy a situation. Or God speaks to us in the dark of the night and we think, I've got to change my ways. But when the daylight comes, we go back to revert to our old ways. So God sends darkness. Darkness is the ninth plague and it's a challenge to Ra, the God of the sun. The God of the sun is the greatest of all the gods and he is the one who passes on his deity to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the greatest of the gods because he is the living embodiment of Ra, the sun god. The sun god rides a a ship in the morning and presents the sun each day. And at night, he rides or sails through the river of darkness fighting off monsters. Well, the Lord challenges Ra by failing to let the sun come up for three days, the darkness is so thick it can be felt. 
In fact, no lights can even be lit in the Egyptian dwellings. They're in utter blackness. But if you look in the land of Goshen, though it's dark, every dwelling is lit up like a Thomas Kincaid painting. So if he were smart, what would Pharaoh conclude? God is the Lord. I am not in control, though I am the descendant of Ra. This God is far greater than anything I have ever encountered. But he doesn't. He hardens his heart, and so God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The conclusions that he might have drawn, and the conclusions that perhaps the people of Israel were drawing as they watched from the sidelines what was taking place, was that Pharaoh is helpless before the God of the Hebrews. The gods of the Egyptians are helpless before the God of the Hebrews. Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers are weak and pathetic. They can do nothing in the presence of the God of the Hebrews. The God of the Hebrews responds to the prayers of Moses. He's personal. He listens. He attends. He hears and he feels what they say. The God of the Hebrews responds to repentant heart. If you but have one. He opposes the stubborn and the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. They can learn all kinds of things about God through this. God does not compromise his command. On several occasions, occasions, Pharaoh had said, okay, I'll let you go, but your little ones have to stay. Okay, I'll let you go, but your livestock have to stay. And each time Moses said, no, 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 no. That's not the way this works. All of us go or none of us go. Every bit of us goes. God was not going to compromise. He was going to deliver his people because that's what he said he was going to do. And God is a covenant God. So Pharaoh and uh, the Egyptians had relied on these 2,000 plus gods and goddesses. And what had it gotten them? Not much, right? I ask you and, and I challenge myself. What do I rely on for peace and security and happiness and health? What what do I rely on for wisdom and guidance? Do, Do I have all these little gods assembled that I turn to? Different places that I go that I think sort of make my life complete? Or do do I draw near to the throne of grace? Each time and every time, draw near to the presence of God. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I am your God. There is no other. Forget all the little fancy ways of coping and draw near to the Lord. Why don't we turn to him more intensely Why do we wait until all our resources are exhausted? And then finally, okay, I can't do it. Lord, I need you. You know, I was here before. Why didn't you come to me right away? He is the great physician. He promises wisdom to those who ask. He delights in worship and praise. And he delivers us from oppression and danger. That's the God we have. So... Pharaoh may have learned something, 
but it doesn't look like he's learned much. So God turns to this final plague in chapter 11. And he gives travel plans to Israel. He says, okay, guys, time is here. It's ready to move. We're ready to move on. This is what I want you to do. God says to Moses, tell the Israelites, all your people, that now you can get up off the sidelines. You're going to be participants. I want you to go to the homes of all the Egyptians. And I want you to ask. I want them to ask each of the Egyptian taskmasters for silver and gold. <laughs> it's like, really? Really? You want us to go and ask our oppressors for silver and gold? Yep, go do that. And it says that God gave the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians. But, but I can just imagine being an Israelite at this point and you know, going to my taskmaster and say, Oh, by the way, Mike, I know you've beaten me for 20 years and you know I've been serving you. And every time I don't move, you kick me and you, you know... And I'm completely dependent on you. But but I was wondering if you had any gold and silver you might like to give me. And it's like, Mike's like, well, sure, of course I do. I'd love to give all my silver. In fact, I have a treasure chest right here full of silver and gold that I've been waiting for this very moment to give to you. And it's like, that's what happened? Why? Because... God gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Just like it says God gave Moses favor in the eyes of the servants of Pharaoh. That's like God holds the heart of the king in his hand and he turns it any way he wants, right? He gives us favor when he wants to give us favor. He manipulates and orchestrates the situation, the circumstances, so that these people who were impoverished, who were poor and oppressed and suffering... Leave Egypt as wealthy, rich, lavished, rich people. We think about being lavished with riches. You think of someone who's sort of living the spoiled lifestyle. But that's in fact what Paul, the apostle, tells us about God's grace toward us. It says that according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And you know what? That's to all of us. You have been called his child. You've been made his son. You belong to him. You've been given an inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved for you. It's yours. God has made you rich, and you are seated now with him in the heavenly places. It's what he says about us, and it's true because he said it. And when he says something, it always comes to pass. He's the covenant God, right? So that's our reality. Even though we don't feel that or see that presently, we know that that grace is ours. It's a lavish grace. And in contrast to the lavish grace that's poured out upon the children of Israel, he says, I'm going to have you go and declare judgment now to Pharaoh. 
I want you to go and tell him, thus says the Lord, about midnight the judgment will come, and the Lord himself will go out into the midst of, of Egypt, and the firstborn shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the slave girl to the firstborn of the cattle. There will not be one dwelling throughout Egypt that will not suffer the consequences of death, the consequences of sin the consequences of rebellion against God. Every household will experience utter distress to the point that the weeping and the crying and the suffering and the distress will be so great it has never been seen before and never will be seen afterward. They will feel the pain. Oh, it's the same pain that they had inflicted upon the children of Israel for 400 years, but now it's on them. And it's issued by God himself. Tell them that judgment is coming. And it will be severe. And then tell them that there's going to be a distinction in this judgment. That God is going to judge Egypt. But no one from Israel is even going to have a hair on their head singed. They're going to be fine. Because God pours grace on those who trust him, his covenant people. But he pours judgment on those who rebel against him and choose disobedience. Still, the heart of Pharaoh will harden. God says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So this is the announcement of judgment. And next week, Chris is going to talk to us about the actual event of the Passover. It is epic and wonderful. Please be here for that. But know this, that we have a God who cannot be compared to any other. There is no other source of joy and happiness and fulfillment. No other source of guidance and wisdom and provision than the Lord God of the Hebrews. The God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who has chosen you and called you to himself. Turn to him. Examine your hearts today once again and say, is there any hardness in my heart? Am I resisting the voice of God, the presence of God at work in me? Or am I soft and say, Lord, I'm your disciple. I'm a learner. I am teachable. I am pliable in your hands Teach me your ways that I might know you. Because that's what he wants, is to know and to be known by us. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and all this sounds a little bit far-fetched, maybe that the Lord has been working in your heart. Understand this, that God offers us grace and mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all like Pharaoh. You, know, you can look at him and say, what a, what a fool. But you know, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. But for the grace of God, I would be in the same place. His grace has melted my heart, and now I recognize that I am a sinner. I come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I say, Lord, I know who I am. And I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die in my place for these sins. I receive you, 
my heart is yours. And when you, when you say that to God and you meet it in your heart, the promise of God is that you will be saved from your sins. You will be given eternal life. You will become his child. And you will receive that inheritance. He will take you out and he will show you who he is and he will lead you on to the promised land which he has prepared for us who know and love him. That's a wonderful promise. That's hope, my friends. If you're here today, don't leave without knowing Christ. I'd love to talk to you afterward. Tyler would be here. Any of the elders, please come back and let's talk together. Let's pray as we close. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the son of your love. We thank you that you took us when we were depending on so many other things living lives of our own apart from you, defiant and proud and wayward. And you drew us to yourself and you poured out your grace, a grace that continues to this day. Continue, Lord, to reveal yourself to each of us and help us to walk in your ways. My prayer, Father God, is if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, that today might be the day for them to receive Christ Jesus as their Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.